Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. State senators are considering a package of bills that would change how the Wisconsin National Guard addresses sexual assault, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. One bill would change language in the Wisconsin Code of Military Justice. Another would add annual reporting requirements from the Department of Military Affairs, while a third would require that same department to establish and maintain a case management system for allegations. The proposals were recommended by a legislative study committee established after a 2019 Department of Defense probe found that the Wisconsin National Guard had failed to handle allegations of assault and harassment for a decade. That investigation was prompted by one whistleblower in the 115th Fighter Wing, who himself faced retaliation after blowing the whistle to Senator Tammy Baldwin. And the final report prompted the resignation of the Wisconsin National Guard's commander. The Republican-authored bills have received support from Democrats, with Governor Evers signaling that he'd sign the legislation if passed. New research from the UW-Madison could lead to a better understanding of bacteria-resistant infections. The research suggests that susceptibility to bacterial infections could be influenced by geography. The researchers are reticent to draw too many conclusions at this stage, but they tell Wisconsin Public Radio that geographic differences in antibiotic resistance are fertile ground for future study. Bacterial infections that resist medical treatment are a growing problem, with more than 2.8 million instances annually, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Shine Technologies, LLC, a radio pharmaceutical company based out of Janesville, released a video that it says shows the first video evidence of energy production via nuclear fusion, according to the Capital Times. The video appears to show evidence of Cherenkov radiation, which is emitted when charged particles move extremely fast in a medium. This would serve as a visual confirmation of a nuclear fusion reaction. Nuclear fusion has long been a goal for alternative fuels, but so far it has proven costly and challenging to produce. Shine Technologies plans on using fusion systems in the production of medical isotopes, which can be used in medical imaging and cancer treatment. Officials at the Henry Vilas Zoo say that it was the subject of another break-in attempt last night, this time at one of the zoo's restaurants, reports Channel 3000. A security guard reported a break-in attempt around 4 a.m. Madison police responded with a perimeter canine team and drone to search the area that came up empty-handed. The zoo is sometimes a target for break-ins, especially during summer months. Donation boxes were the target of not one but two burglaries in 2021. Over $17 million in federal funding is headed Madison's way for bike, pedestrian, and streets projects. The Greater Madison MPO, which is responsible for comprehensive transportation planning between the city and federal government, announced the funding in an email this afternoon. The federal funding will go to eight total projects. More than $6.5 million will go to the construction of a new multi-use segment of the Glacial Drumlin Path from I-3990 to Buckeye Road, with proposed construction in 2027. Two and a quarter million dollars will fund the final leg of the West Town Path, connecting the Ice Age Junction Pathway to Whitney Way, with proposed construction in 2027. 
Almost four million dollars will fund paths used uh, will fund paths during the reconstruction of John Nolan Drive, with proposed construction in 2026. And millions more will head back to will head to Rimrock Road, O'Keefe Avenue, and St. Albert, uh, the Great Drive for pavement, lane, and other street improvements. The use of St. Vincent de Paul Food Pantry on Fish Hatchery Road has hit a record high again. The pantry served around uh, served a record 2,858 households in June, breaking the previous high set just back in March. The CEO of St. Vinny's told the Capital Times that while use of the pantry dropped to historic lows in the middle of the pandemic, traffic began to rise again last year as pandem- pandemic assistance began to run out. Other food pantries, area food pantries like River Food Pantry on Madison's north side and the Fritz Food Pantry at Goodman Community Center have also seen large increases in demand. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. A neighborhood meeting tonight will outline a developer's proposal for a hotel, housing, and parking uh, on the corner of Blair and Wilson Street. The downtown block has often been the site of proposed redevelopment to no success. But as WORT producer Nate Carlin reports, Madison's housing crunch could be fueling more enthusiasm for the project this time around. The proposal from Eau Claire-based developer JCAP Real Estate would add a six-story hotel, eight-story residence building, and a parking lot along Blair Street, just off the hairball intersection with John Nolan Drive. The hotel would have over 100 rooms and run along East Wilson. The residence building would house 150 units and run along South Blair Street. All of that, though, would mean demolishing the buildings that hold two Madison standbys, the Essen House and the Comeback Inn. It's the fourth time in the past 23 years that a developer has sought to redevelop the downtown block, the last of which was in 2019. Alder Marsha Rummel, whose district includes the property, says that this time the project could have legs. Well, I think it's a great opportunity to fill in a parking lot and include affordable housing. I think the developers uh, reviewed the previous uh, proposals and realized doing two buildings would solve many of their problems, the problems that the previous Under the proposal, some of the 150 residential units would be classified as affordable housing. In this case, some of the units would be set at 60% of the area median income, or about $40,000 in Madison. But that housing would come at the expense of some of Madison's history. While the historic Hotel Ruby Marie would remain as a separate structure, the buildings that house the Essen House and Comeback Inn would need to be demolished. Both of the neighborhood bars have been around for decades. The Essen House, a traditional German beer hall, first opened in 1983. The Comeback Inn neighborhood bar has been around since 1990, hosting live music, karaoke, and summer volleyball leagues. Rommel says that while some community members are concerned about losing that community character, the promise of housing has helped bolster support. Um, I have heard some concerns about some regrets for losing the historic fabric on East Wilson. It's in a National Register district, and it's pretty old. But I think overall there's a general positive feeling about filling in the parking lot with housing. That seems pretty straightforward. It just, you know, how it's done will help decide whether it's an overall plus and people, you know, support it. Tonight, the city will host a neighborhood listening session on the proposed redevelopment. The meeting, which is virtual, will start in just a few minutes at 6.30 p.m. The proposal is slated to head to the Landmarks Commission and the Urban Design Commission for further review. Reporting for WORT News, 
I'm Nate Carlin. The time is now 6.14, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. As we reported yesterday, Governor Tony Evers has called state lawmakers into special session next month to take up workforce readiness. The main driver of the special session is to drum up continuing assistance for child care programs such as Child Care Counts, which is slated to run out of funds at the start of next year. The child care industry is balancing several unique demands. High costs for families, high costs for operators, and still low pay for workers, as analyzed by a recent report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Following up on our coverage yesterday, our producer Nate Carlin sat down with Ruth Schmidt, director of the Wisconsin Early Childhood Association, to talk more about the child care crisis. I'm here with Ruth Schmidt. She's the director of the Wisconsin Early Child Care Association a group devoted to professional training and advocacy for early childhood educators. She is here to talk about the future of child care now that the funding for the Child Care Counts program did not make it into the state budget. So uh, you've been at WECA for a little bit. Um, can you tell me what kind of trends you've seen over the years for, for child care in Wisconsin? Yeah, so I've been at WECA for about 21 years, and I wish I could tell you that I've seen these dramatic improvements in terms of what's going on in child care. And while I think we see a childcare sector in our state where we have really committed people in this field and doing incredibly hard work and really stepped up to the plate during COVID, we have had a chronic issue of underfunding for childcare. Um, this isn't unique to Wisconsin, this is sort of across the nation. Our country does not do big time public investment into early childhood education, despite the fact that this is when we're seeing explosive brain growth in young children and it's the vehicle by which parents with young children go to work, right? Our economy relies on it. So what we've seen is a growing understanding from sectors across the state of the importance of childcare. We certainly saw during COVID significant federal funding coming into this field that really helped to keep doors open, helped to keep people paid, helped to keep families able to access care. But we have not seen the trajectory of support for this field that we need to ensure that we get a big public investment in our state budget into childcare. So, so while we've seen consistently good quality care, we know that the turnover rate of people working in this field is crazy high. It probably exceeds 40%. We know that 
childcare is expensive and there's really good reasons why it's expensive and why we have the regulations we have in place, uh, but it makes it really hard for parents to afford it. And it makes it really hard for childcare programs to make ends meet and keep their staff employed. You sent me the results of a survey your organization had uh, had put on recently and the, those results were pretty eye-opening. You, you wanna walk me through that a little bit? We, we sort of consistently try and stay on top of what is this industry thinking and feeling, how are they reacting to what is happening in terms of policy and budget things. And so we have followed a lot of surveys that other groups have done in the state of Wisconsin and what's been happening nationally in terms of surveying people in this field in Wisconsin. And once the budget completed, so once Joint Finance had acted, which sort of was the nail in the coffin on, you know, child care counts, we saw efforts to try and resurrect it in the state budget process with the full legislature, but ultimately, you know, the governor signed a budget that did not include funding for child care counts. And this is this enormous 300 plus million dollar investment that we were working super hard on getting. We had probably 95,000 letters sent to the Capitol calling for this investment, huge advocacy done on this. Um, but the bottom line, it didn't get funded. And so we reached out to providers across the state of Wisconsin, of course, to kind of say, what's happening? What are you gonna do? How is this gonna impact you? What we know is that back in January, when the national results were let, were given out, we saw that 60% of programs in Wisconsin said, without this ongoing funding for child care counts, we'll have to raise our rates. Our current data is showing um, 86% of child care programs in Wisconsin are indicating that they will likely have to raise their rates because funding for child care counts didn't happen. And so we're already hearing stories um, in some areas of the state, this is as high as 20 to 40% in terms of increases in cost. I think what people don't fully understand is that child care counts allow child care programs to keep operating without jacking their prices up during COVID. So all of us as consumers have seen our gas prices go up, our food prices go up, all goods and materials are going up. Childcare didn't do that. That's no longer a possibility. Childcare must raise its rates in order to cover its expenses. So number one, we've gone from a 60% survey rate of we're gonna raise our rates to close to a 90% survey rate of we're gonna raise our rates. In addition to that, the national survey for Wisconsin showed about 30%, 35% of individuals who work in the field were saying they might leave the field without this funding. That number has jumped up to 47% of educators in the state of Wisconsin indicating that they may choose to leave the field because of this. And I think it's broader than just, we didn't get funding. It's also, we had funding, we know what it feels like, we know how we can do well with this, and we have a state that didn't support us. So it's, it's this sense of the money's there, you could have done this, you chose not to do this, and what does that say about how we as people who work in this field are valued? And then the final thing I'll say, I'll say is that we're seeing about 32% of childcare programs indicate that they'll have to consider closing their doors as a result of this happening. That's huge. And of the childcare programs, so we had about 500 childcare program directors respond to our survey. The other piece is just in 500 programs, we're seeing a wait list 
that exceeds 13,000 children. 13,000 children just trying to get into those 500 childcare programs. These are families with no care. What are they doing? Where, how are they getting to work? Where are their children and how is it safe and, and nurturing and supportive and educating if we as a state aren't gonna make this investment? Can you talk a little bit about why early childhood education has struggled with securing public funding? I feel like it's so instinctual that there's public funding for K through 12 and pre-K seems to be a, a, a gap in services. It's very fascinating to me. In our country, there is this kind of rule that if you have children, they're your responsibility. You chose to have that child. This is about personal responsibility. This is about personal choice. That's the choice you made. You need to pay to raise that child, right? There's elements of that that make sense. And yet at the same time, when that child hits the age of four, suddenly in Wisconsin, you have free four-year-old kindergarten available for them, right? We made a decision as a state to value that. It's time to make a decision to value the fact that childcare is allowing people to work, which supports our economy. It's growing the next generation of workers in our state, which also supports our economy. Almost every other wealthy nation has figured this out. Our nation has not figured it out, and certainly our state has not figured it out. You do see other states making pretty dramatic investments in childcare. Minnesota has made a deep investment in childcare. New Mexico has made a deep investment in childcare. Even Kentucky has made a deep investment in childcare, making people who have kids and work in this field have eligibility for subsidy support automatically. We're not touching any of those things in Wisconsin. And when you look at what voters think about this issue, so we did some uh, polling the, uh, like right prior to COVID, uh, we were polling voters in Wisconsin. And across the board, this is, this is a nonpartisan issue, right? Or this is a bipartisan issue. Both parties, voters from both parties are ready to see our state make an investment into childcare close to 90% of people who responded to the poll questions that were being asked said they supported childcare, they supported a state investment in childcare, they see it as part of a strong economy in our state, and yet we're not doing it. Uh, and, and I think the unfortunate part is it gets caught up as a political hot potato when the bottom line is um, both parties could have a significant political win out of this, right? This is something that both parties should be standing behind because it's good for the voters in all districts across our state. Uh, yeah, do you, do you see municipalities taking up the slack? Is there stuff that, that local governments are doing to address the, the issue? I think we've seen in the past year or two, a lot of governments, uh, local governments, county governments uh, stepping up, but I would say you know, they're doing it with their local ARPA recovery funds. Those two will run out, right? And so long-term investments, I'd say all bets are off in terms of what happens. There's very few counties and municipalities that are putting significant money directly into supporting childcare in their region, um, other than their, uh, their ARPA local recovery fund dollars. It just is not, childcare is expensive. Passing that fiscal note on for public funding is just a really huge lift. And, you know, City of Madison puts money into this. 
the city of Madison takes this issue like super, super seriously and always has. They've always been sort of really right on spot with this, but that's an anomaly in our state. And I'd say that's an anomaly in a lot of states. Um, so I think this is an issue that while there's options for local types of government funding for this, I don't think we're seeing it happen outside of them using their current ARPA dollars to spend down and put into childcare. Can you talk a little bit about how the industry is structured? It feels like there's a, a pretty interesting boundary between credentialed and uncredentialed workers and uh, paid and unpaid workers in the field. And I was just curious, like, how do you see the, the child care getting distributed between the, the different people working in, in early childhood? Wisconsin used to have a very, very, very strong, robust, what we call family child care uh, field. So these are, these are individuals who operate child care out of their homes. You still have to be regulated. You still have to either get certified or licensed, depending on how many children you're caring for in your home. Um, but it's done in your home. The education standards that are required for people who are doing certified family childcare, so that's serving up to three kids in your home, those aren't quite as steep as what we see for lead teachers um, in some of our uh, group childcare programs. Um, but we used to have close to 8,000 family childcare programs in our state. Uh, we are, I don't know the exact number, I haven't looked at it recently, but I'd be suspicious if we're down below 2,500 regulated family child care programs in our state. This is hitting our rural communities in pretty devastating ways. And family child care, it was just very hard to compete. So I'm going to get just a teeny bit, teeny bit in the weeds here. Four-year-old kindergarten, right? When you take four-year-olds out of a child care program to put them into a four-year-old kindergarten program, it's great for the kids. It's great for the families, right? They're getting free care and that's really important. The child care program lost kind of what we call the bread and butter of child care because you can put more four-year-olds in a classroom than you can put babies in a classroom, right? You can't stick 12 babies in a classroom with one individual. It would not be a good situation for anybody if you did that. Some say even four babies in a classroom with one individual is a lot, right? So we lost a ton of family child care when we saw growth of four-year-old kindergarten. And that's been hard on our rural communities, really hard on our rural communities because they can't find care for their kids. That was Ruth Schmidt, director of the Wisconsin Early Child Care Association. The governor has called a special legislative session in part to restore funding to the Child Care Accounts program. But the legislature has signaled that it is unlikely to pass the measure. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Astronomers produce the first neutrino map of our galaxy. Rob McClure gives us an in-depth weather forecast. And Stu Levitin travels back to August 1967. So stay tuned, but first we'll take another break and check back in with the BBC for a bulletin of world headlines. You're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. The nearly massless and neutrally charged subatomic particles, known as neutrinos, ignore forces of the universe such as gravity and electromagnetic forces. And they can carry information from far parts of the universe, helping researchers map the universe through proxy. The IceCube Neutrino Observatory, a project run by researchers at UW-Madison, uses Antarctica's vast ice sheet as a sort of neutrino trap. And using that trap, they've just released their first neutrino astronomical map of the Milky Way galaxy. 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing learned more about the neutrino trap and map earlier this week from Francis Halzen, a professor of particle physics at UW-Madison and communicator for the IceCube project. So let's start by talking about how are neutrinos formed? Yes, uh, and that is uh, a very good question to start. And it tells us uh, the reason why we built this experiment. There are actually many reasons, but uh, this was the prime reason. Neutrinos are, you know, the matter in in the universe is made up of neutrons and protons that make nuclei. Then you put electrons around it, and that makes atoms. And uh, that's almost the complete universe, but there's also the neutrino. And the neutrino can change neutrons into protons, and that's nuclear physics. And so the neutrino is kind of an agent that makes nuclear physics possible. And uh, so one of the reasons we built this experiment was to look for uh, protons in the universe that uh, create nuclear interactions that make neutrinos. Uh, The reason we are interested in protons is uh, protons in astronomy, you don't call protons, you call cosmic rays. And uh, when you look at the universe and you go to higher and higher energies, smaller and smaller wavelengths of light, you know, you go to blue light and then to X-rays, to gamma rays. At some point, we don't see light anymore. The universe is dominated. The, The energy that reaches us from the universe is dominated by protons, by cosmic rays, not by light. And we discovered those more than 100 years ago, but we don't know where they come from. So that's the reason we, uh, we look for neutrinos, because neutrinos are only produced by in uh, nuclear interactions, and uh, so they trace sources of the protons, which we now actually begin to identify. The interesting thing is that the only sources we really have observed come from other galaxies, not from our own galaxy. And it took us almost a decade to find our own galaxy, which raises all kinds of physics questions. You know, when you go out and look at the sky, you see the Milky Way. It's the most prominent feature in the sky. And so that's true for every color and every wavelength of light, from radio to to gamma rays, and it's not the case for neutrinos. We see the universe, and you really have to squint to see our galaxy, and it took us 10 years almost to, to find it. So why is that? Why why is the Milky Way galaxy have fewer neutrinos than are coming from elsewhere in the universe? 
you know, there may be many answers, but I, I have my favorite answer, that, but it's still kind of a speculation. But, you know, these particles we observe, as I already indicated, they have enormous energies. These cosmic rays have enormous energies. In fact, some of these cosmic rays have, have energies that are 100 million times the energy of the particles we accelerate at the Large Hadron Collider. And so in these cosmic accelerators, you need an enormous amount of energy to power the accelerator. You know, in Geneva, the lights blink when you turn the, on the TV downtown when they turn the Large Hadron Collider on. We now have a clear indication that the places where these particles are accelerated are near supermassive black holes. And so, you know, every galaxy has a supermassive black hole at its center. But some are active, some are not active. Fortunately, our black hole is not active. But in other galaxies there, where there are active black holes, that's where these particles are accelerated. And active means that basically the black hole is cannibalizing its galaxy. And when matter falls into the black hole, particles get accelerated and produce neutrinos in this mess of matter and radiation that surrounds the black hole. And so the idea is that the reason we see the universe first is that we see all these supermassive black holes sending neutrinos at us. And our black hole has not been active for at least a few million years, astronomers tell us. And so that's why we don't have the major source of neutrinos in the universe. So I like to say that uh, we are kind of a neutrino desert, and that's why it took us 10 years to find it. So talk about what the significance is of uh, the map that you've produced of the Milky Way. You talked about how it's difficult to uh, put it together because there's not a lot of neutrinos coming out of the Milky Way. But what's the promise of this kind of astronomy, of neutrino astronomy? You have to realize this is the first time. So I, we will see. That's the answer to, uh, to your question. But now we are actually seeing our galaxy for the first time in particles a very special kind of particle. And so we don't know what we are going to learn. But one thing we hope for, the hope is that we now can start looking and use the neutrinos instead of light to look for the sources of neutrinos in our own galaxy, which are, as I said, probably not a black hole. Zwicky in the 1930s gave us the answer. The cosmic rays are accelerated in supernova explosions. A star runs out of nuclear fuel, it explodes, and that uh, creates cosmic rays, and, and they are eventually accelerated to, high, to these high energies. It's a totally reasonable answer. It's in all textbooks, but there is still no real evidence for that. It hasn't been proven. And in the last few years, people actually begin to doubt it, begin to question it. Uh, I don't know. But you see, we now know some sources of cosmic rays outside our galaxy, but where they are produced in our own galaxy is still a bit of a mystery. So talk a little bit about how Ice Cube works. Why Antarctica? And how do you capture these notoriously slippery particles? The idea of how you detect neutrinos goes back to the discovery by Rhinus in 1956, Cowan and Rhinus. And so uh, 
what you need is a big transparent volume of water and light sensors. And so the neutrinos are rightly called the ghost particle because uh, you never see a neutrino. It has no electric charge. So, so it's only when it crashes into a nucleus, in our case, a nucleus of an ice atom, that it makes this nuclear spark, and that spark emits light. And we collect the light in a kilometer cube of Antarctic ice. We collect this light produced by neutrinos that stop in the ice. And from the light pattern, we managed to reconstruct all the physics is known and understood. We managed to reconstruct what the energy of this neutrino is and where it comes from. So we have a telescope. We can trace the direction of the neutrino back to its sources. And there are detectors like that, like in the Japanese Alps, that are uh, enormous volumes of water. But the biggest one was still like 10,000 times too small to do the the astronomy and the physics we are doing now. And so uh, what we decided, and this was a concept that was part of development in the late 1980s here at the University of Wisconsin. And so we managed to implement this idea in a huge block of ice, uh, a gigaton of ice, actually, that is about a mile under the geographic South Pole in the middle of Antarctica. You know, there is a a layer of three kilometers of ice under the geographic South Pole. And if you go a mile deep, you will find our detector made of beautiful, transparent Antarctic ice with five more than 5,000 light sensors melted into this block of ice to form the ice cube experiment. That was Francis Halzen, a professor of particle physics at the University of Wisconsin. He joined us here on WORT to discuss the search for neutrinos in our galaxy as part of the 8 o'clock buzz with Brian Standing. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, as I mentioned last week, August can be a dull month meteorologically, and uh, so far that seems to be bearing out. The first nine days of August have seen only five degrees variation in the average temperature. And we've had just a trace of precipitation so far, so not a a lot of dynamism in the atmosphere. One element of that may be, uh, and knock on wood here, uh, a pleasant lack of moisture in the low-level environment. Uh, Dew points have remained in the upper 50s to low 60s, by and large, for much of the past several days. At a time of the year when it's not uncommon to see them climb into the 70s as the maturing corn crop adds uh, its evapotranspiration to the moisture already in the air from uh, woodlands and grass cover. So our dry soils this year may be helping to a certain extent in that regard. Uh, Incidentally, if a dew point of 60 and a dew point of 70 don't particularly sound far apart, I'll remind you that there's nearly 50% more moisture in a 70 degree dew point volume of air as versus 60 degrees. Uh, and that manifests in the fact that most people, at least in this climate, do begin to notice the air becoming significantly more uncomfortable between a dew point of 60 and a dew point of 70. And of course, thunderstorms can become significantly stronger as the dew point transitions from 60 to 70 degrees, since most of the energy in a thunderstorm does come from the latent heat of condensation of water. 
Uh, and indeed, how high the dew point either might or might not rise this coming Friday is one of the factors that uh, are at odds between the computer models in relation to exactly what's going to happen as we reach our next credible precipitation chance. Uh, I'll try to sort out the details for this in a minute. But first, I want to invite you to take a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage which this evening shows clearly the much more zonal jet stream configuration that we uh, have had over the continent uh, as compared to the amplified and stagnant pattern that we saw last week and through much of the previous month. There are several discernible mid-sized ridges and troughs uh, moving fairly briskly eastward across about the northern half of the U.S. and southern Canada at the moment. Uh, including the little low-pressure circulation that passed to our southwest this morning and through the gray shield of cirrus clouds up overhead today. And uh, also the quite energetic low that's up north of Lake Superior just at the moment that's currently firing off some convection, mostly over northern Wisconsin. Uh, Some of that's far enough south that it could yet squeak into the very north or northeast parts of the listening area before it dies out a little later this evening. Uh, And far out to the northwest, just streaking ashore over central British Columbia, you can see on the image the uh, speed maximum that's going to be energizing the low-pressure circulation that will drop southeastward over us on Friday. As that feature approaches, uh, backing southwesterly and southerly winds will be drawing moisture northward up the plains to our west and likely erupting shower and thunderstorm development in the Dakotas or western Minnesota late tomorrow night or very early on Friday, which will track uh, probably somewhere nearby us as we get into Friday morning. The two longer-range high-resolution models that uh, at this point stretch out that far are showing those initial thunderstorms generally waning as they approach, but taking somewhat different tacks as well. And the the damper environment that they leave in their wake as they pass here with the daytime dew points up in either the low or upper 60s, depending upon which model you want to look at, will in part determine the likely strength of later day convection, which may erupt either near bias or just to the west, possibly even further to the east. This would be in the afternoon hours. The Storm Prediction Center currently has areas from here, generally east and south, into the balance of Wisconsin and down into Illinois, outlook for possible severe weather later Friday, with wind and hail being the primary concern so far there. (coughs) Pardon me. Uh, Anyway, uh, following uh, the cold frontal passage later Friday night, we should be set up for a pretty nice weekend, generally speaking, with drier air returning on breezy northwesterly winds for Saturday and uh, perhaps into part of Sunday. Uh, Back to the details for this evening. Passing high clouds will generally continue to clear eastward out of the area, although uh, far northern or northeastern areas may see uh, some debris from thunderstorms uh, adjacent to those areas. It looks like uh, uh, northeastern Columbia and parts of Dodge County are currently seeing a couple of showers, and the A couple may work into northern Sauk or Columbia counties a little later in the evening. Sky should otherwise uh, clear as we go through the evening, with temperatures dropping back to the low 60s on light westerly winds. Tomorrow, generally clear skies through much of the day should see high and mid-level clouds begin to invade from the west towards evening and in the overnight. Temperatures will reach the low 80s on northwesterly winds coming up to 8 to 12 miles per hour in the afternoon. Uh, clouds might thicken up then as we get towards daybreak on Friday as the upstream storms from the Dakotas or Minnesota push across the area. 
Uh, most likely, I think, concentrated up to our north with only cloud cover here, but possibly with some dissipating thunderstorms as well, pushing through the listening area in scattered fashion on Friday morning. Temperatures will drop into the mid-60s overnight with, t- with dew points coming up into the mid-60s and then continuing to climb uh, perhaps towards 70 as we warm through Friday morning. Uh, I think we'll see a good chunk of sun on Friday, uh, or at least a dry on Friday after that first wave of convection passes, but we're uh, reasonably likely to see redevelopment in the afternoon of thunderstorms, with resulting uh, storms being fairly uh, strong, perhaps, given available low-level energy. So you might keep a prize of the Storm Prediction Center, uh, which you can link to off of the WORT uh, weather webpage. Temperatures Friday should reach 80 or so, uh, possibly a little warmer if we see some better clearing, and dew points will be sticky that day, up near 70 degrees the way it appears, on southwesterly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Thunderstorms should move east uh, fairly progressively, then uh, overnight into Saturday, with clouds clearing out as well as we enter the day. Temperatures will reach the low 80s, but dew points will descend down into the low 60s on breezy northwesterly winds up at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Temperatures will drop towards 60 overnight and will be back towards around 80 on Sunday, although we're likely to see increasing cloud cover and possibly even some shower chances as the next wave starts to approach us for Sunday into Monday. At the moment, down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 79 degrees. The dew point is 59. Uh, Winds are uh, light out of the southwest, about 5 miles per hour. Uh, milky cirrus up in the sky last I looked out overhead uh, just a little bit of alta cumulus left up there as well about 20 or 25,000 feet and the barometers at uh, 29.73 inches of mercury and falling slowly It's now 6.50 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to August 1967 for news of race relations, urban renewal, and an interesting pop rock concert. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 56 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, August. 1967. The summer of 67 sizzles with what the Equal Opportunities Commission calls, quote, tension-filled incidents with racial overtones. Most of the tension comes from whites. Black families living around Odana Road and Toke Boulevard have their homes and cars vandalized. A black family moving into the Monroe Street area faces open hostility. And a white woman pickets the new home of a black family in Sherman Village. There are fights between white and black students near East High, with conflict spreading to Central High as well. Trying to tamp down tensions and also better understand the relationship between the minority community and the all-white Madison Police Department, the EOC holds hearings in the neighborhoods where most blacks live. On August 2nd, about 150 East Side residents, about 20 of them black, attend an emotional hearing at Marquette School, 
They tell commissioners and Mayor Otto Feske of race-based bias and brutality by the department, which they make a point of noting remains all-white. The next morning, the police department adds what it calls a correction to the help-wanted ad already running in daily newspapers, declaring for the first time the department to be an equal opportunity employer. That night, a large Southside crowd tells similar stories at Abraham Lincoln School. They want a civilian review board of police actions, but Mayor Otto Feske says no, that's a function of the Police and Fire Commission. On August 4th, testimony from the department's number two man, Inspector Herman Thomas, joined by the six policemen who patrol the South Madison and Williamson Street areas. They all tell the commissioners that they have never hassled or hurt any black residents. South Madison Patrolman Gerald Eastman says, quote, I'm amazed at the small number of incidents and the ease with which we can communicate with the colored people. The EOC takes the matter under advisement and retires to write a report. A few days later, the civil rights focus turns to the public schools, as Superintendent Douglas Ritchie tells the school board he wants a, quote, cosmopolitan staff embracing all nationalities and races. But he admits the district still does not have as many black teachers and staff as are needed. There may be some slight progress. According to a federally mandated survey, 13 of Madison's 1,623 instructional staff are black, up from 9 in 1966. Ritchie says the biggest problem is a lack of black applicants, as most graduates of historically black colleges and universities prefer to work in minority districts in the South. And the student population also remains overwhelmingly white, with only 512 blacks among the 34,000 pupils, and 16 of the 54 schools having no black pupils at all. The schools with the highest number of black pupils are Franklin Elementary, 101, Central High, with 50, Marquette Elementary School, with 49, and Lincoln Junior High, with 48. And an unusual number also important to the schools. For the first time since 1947, there are fewer Madisonians under the age of 21 than the year before. That cohort now numbers 58,184, 344 fewer than in 1966. And here's another number, 69,485. That's how many registered voters Madison had as August began. But many are soon to find out, you snooze, you lose, as City Clerk Eldon Hole begins removing 18,691 delinquent voters from the registration lists. All it takes to be held a Lincoln voter is not voting in any election over a two-year period. Not all the voters stricken were delinquent, as some had surely moved away. But don't fear for democracy in Madison. Hole expects about 20,000 new registrants for next April's presidential primary and municipal elections. And at the end of the month, Superintendent Ritchie pivots from civil rights to protest, when five Madison teachers are arrested for handing out anti-war leaflets outside the new Dane County Memorial Coliseum during a teacher convention. They're charged with unauthorized use of the Dane County Fairgrounds, but are quickly released on order of District Attorney James Bowl when Ritchie gives permission for the distribution. 
The Coliseum is also the site this month of a pop and rock concert that has 6,000 teeny boppers screaming and a number of parents a bit alarmed. The screams are for the headliners, Herman's Hermits. The alarm is over the explosive, instrument-destroying finale of one of the supporting acts, The Who, fresh from their recent success at the Monterey Pop Festival, ripping through a set that includes Summertime Blues and My Generation. Urban renewal is coming to South Madison as the council unanimously approves the Madison Redevelopment Authority's $2.7 million program for Bram's Edition, the 15 blocks bounded by Wingra Creek on the north, Buick Street on the south, South Park Street on the west, and the Northwestern Railroad on the east. Unlike the Triangle Urban Renewal Project of 1958-63, these residents want the renewal program because, unlike the Triangle, this plan does not clear the entire 72-acre area, but saves and rehabs 155 of the 221 substandard structures. It will also reconstruct several streets to Madison standards and improve Penn Park. The local share for the project is $700,000, with the MRA spending another $322,000 to buy the land under the 66 houses it's going to tear down, which it will then sell for new construction. Leading the business wire this month, the J.C. Penney Company announces it has bought a 104-acre tract on East Washington Avenue, past Highway 51, where it will develop a regional shopping center. The land, which the city will soon annex from the town of Burke, was purchased from Mr. and Mrs. Albert Niebuhr. His family had owned the farmland since 1898. And two young men of Madison die in Vietnam this month. Army Specialist 4th Class Vernon J. Stitch, a 21-year-old heavy truck driver, is killed in a vehicle crash in Cameron Bay on August 7th. Stitch, whose father Vernon lives at 3112 Atwood Avenue, arrived in Vietnam about 10 weeks earlier. Army Corporal Mark W. Newman, 20, West High, 1965, a paratrooper with the 101st Airborne Division, is killed while on patrol on August 25th. The Madison native joined the Army in March 1966 and was set to Vietnam that September, and recently volunteered for six months' extra duty in-country. Newman's father, Master Sergeant Willard F. Newman, 1833 Baker Avenue, is the supervisor of Army recruiting in Wisconsin. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Stu Levitan, thanks for being our feature contributor. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Thanks to Nate Carlin for producing this evening, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Up next is a live edition of Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>